We are retweeting Jesus all this summer through the book of James, finding all those places where James is echoing his half-brother, Jesus. As James, the pastor of the Jerusalem church, talks to his congregation. Sometimes you know it's well with your soul, and sometimes you have weeks and days where it's very hard to confess it is well with my soul. Sometimes it happens. Trouble comes and sorrow comes and tragedy comes into your life. And it just doesn't feel like you are very well inside. But God always sends these little reminders to us about his goodness and his grace. And God has implanted for some reason in our four-year-old grandson this little thing he does. And I thought he was doing it just for me. Because we got out of the car, he's trailing behind me, and he says out loud, Papa! I said, what? He says, I love you. Hey, if you're not a grandpa, maybe you can't get that, all right? But for that little boy to say he loves me, and then he does it again, and then he does it again, and I'm thinking, he just stops in the middle of anything and says, I love you, Papa. And I asked Janet yesterday, I said, Janet, does he do that with you? And she said, yes, he does. He'll say, Nina, I love you. Even though there's trouble in the world, there's still this wonderful love in the world expressed by children and friends and family and God himself. And we can sing it as well with my soul knowing that although there are troubles and problems and illness and distress, there's also the wonderful presence of God and his love in our lives. And James wants us to hang on to this truth today about the exceeding greatness of the love and grace of God and the example of the Lord Jesus in the laying down of his life. And so in chapter 3, as he deals with wisdom, He's talking to us really about two different ways to live your life. And maybe that is a simplification of things as they are. Maybe there are lots of different ways to live your life. But basically, Jesus said, you can either hold on to your life and grasp it and seek to save it. And if you do, ultimately, you're going to lose it. Or you can love others, give away your life, lay it down, bury it, and experience real life. He illustrates this in all kinds of ways, including in the story of the Good Samaritan where he says to the man who is the expert in the law, when the man says, well, the commands of God, love, love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as, as yourself, he says, do this and you will live. You will live. And then he tells the story of the man who helped the man in the ditch, the Good Samaritan, and he says, do this and you will live. You'll live. This will be life to you. And James is saying there's two ways to live your life. There's a godly wisdom. There's a spiritual wisdom. And there's a worldly wisdom, an unspiritual wisdom. And you see lots of people implementing this wisdom that grabs life and grips it and tries to save it and accumulates life unto itself in the fear that it might lose it. 
You see this kind of notion that this is the way to live your life, to grab it all and hold it close and make sure you take care of number one. And Jesus says there's another way to live your life. You can grab it like that and you'll lose it or you can let it go. You can release your life. You can lay it down. And if you do, you will find it. James is echoing Jesus with this paragraph on wisdom that begins in chapter 3, verse 13. He asks the question, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Isn't that beautiful scripture? Got to underline that. Got to mark it down. Who is wise? Who is wise? Who's wise in understanding among you? The smartest man in the world was only wise because he was good. The smartest man who ever lived would not have been wise had he not been good. We think of wisdom as something that happens in the brain. A man writing difficult formulas on a chalkboard. A student going in and nailing their ACT with a 34. We think of wisdom in terms of IQ. Rarely do we connect wisdom to activity relationships, deeds done in the world. But the Bible always consistently connects the two so that a wise person is somebody who puts their body in motion, not just their brain or their mouth. And a fool is somebody who supposes they have done something if they've only thought something. This 
break between doing and thinking, faith and deeds. God intends to address in every heart that wants to be wise. Who is wise and understanding among you? Would you like to be wise or do you want to be a fool? Have you ever had anybody say, you're looking at a fool? I had that happen to me once. I was in a clothing store in Goldthwaite, Texas. None of you have ever been there, all right? And I saw a woman that I'd known as a youth. And she looked at me and recognized me. And she said to me, you're looking at a fool. We had a short conversation, and that's what she said. Do you want to be foolish? You don't. You want to be wise. There's a way to show your wisdom. You can actually demonstrate it. Now, everybody in the room, I assume that you got ready for church this morning. You probably brushed your teeth, right? We are all hoping you did. You looked at what you were going to wear. I always let Janet sort of look at how I'm dressed and see if it's okay. So I spend a little time making sure some of you put on makeup, you know, and you checked your shoes and all of that. You wanted to present well. Show that you are caring about how you look. And that's okay. That's okay. Did you ever think that you could show your wisdom? In fact, you show your wisdom or lack thereof every day and people are watching and they know they know and I suppose there are times when you see somebody explode at work and you go what a fool and you may even say to somebody that guy's he's a fool don't don't worry about him I mean you write them off because their behavior is such that you know they don't practice wisdom they don't have understanding They're hurting the people they're supposed to help. They're not doing good. They're doing ill. Maybe they're even the boss, and you know they got it backwards. They got it backwards. Who put this guy in charge? I mean, who did this? You know it, and people are watching your life, and they're seeing how you behave. And they're seeing either that you have wisdom or that you are foolish. Show your wisdom, how? By your deeds, by what you do. Deeds that are done in humility. Now, if you were rescuing yourself eternally, with this behavior James is recommending, these good deeds, then you could be pretty proud about it. You could say, I helped six widows and 12 orphans. I've sent money to care for poor people in Africa and South America, and I'm just as proud as I can be that now I know I have tipped the scales in my favor in heaven, and when God looks at me, I'm doing lots more good than I am doing bad. And so I'm proud to say I'm going to heaven because I've been so good. 
That doesn't sound very humble, does it? But we imply it. We imply it. Sometimes we imply it by how we treat the needy. We treat them just a little bit condescendingly. And our conversation is a tad condescending because their condition is partly their fault. And look at me, I'm doing so well. I am spiritually superior to these people I'm trying to help. And so I come to help them and bless them with my presence. And maybe they can become more like me after they meet me. That doesn't sound very humble either, does it? What's wrong with this person who's seeking to do their good deeds, but they can't somehow manage to do it with humility? What's wrong with them? They have a suspicion that they deserve the good gifts of God. And other people don't so much, you know? And the breaks you got in life and the things you've achieved in life, you've done it out of hard work and, and good thinking and good practice, and you, you deserve what you've got. And so when you talk to somebody who has less, it seems to you that they are less deserving. And so really, the moral framework of the universe is built on the people have more, they're better people. And the people have less, they're not quite so good. And you might hold on to that almost subconsciously, almost without enunciating it or saying it, knowing that it flies right in the face of the direct teaching of Jesus that your life does not consist of the things which you possess. Knowing it knowing that this would be an affront to the Lord who died naked on a cross with not a penny to his name. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, and the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. It's amazing how backwards we can get it when we say we're followers of Jesus. And he died naked on a cross, and we're going to be haughty and feel superior because we got more than somebody down the street that we're trying to help. We got to manage to do these good deeds in humility, or they are ashamed to us, and they disgrace the Lord we say we love. This is how you do that. This is how you do a good thing in humility. You recognize that you are an undeserving sinner who broke the law of God and deserved His judgment on your life. And God loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for your, for your sin and pay the penalty of your sin debt. And every day when you wake up and you take your first breath, you live with gratitude 24-7 for a God who cared enough about you to pick you out of the mess you're in and set your feet on a rock to stay and made you a child of God, not because you deserve it, not because you're better, not because he looked at you and thought, Hey, there's a good guy. All because of Jesus. And brother, if that doesn't sound like the gospel to you, you've been misunderstanding for all the years you've been sitting in that pew. You got it wrong. 
You're not saved because you deserve it. You're not a child of God because you're so good. You are only in the graces of God because he sent his son Jesus to pay your sin debt. And that's it. That's it. You're not trying to improve your salvation when you go do something good because Jesus paid it all. And this humility that I operate in as I do what God has called me to do, loving my neighbor and caring for those around me, this humility is the true result of wisdom that understands your own helpless condition before God and the wonderful grace of a Father in heaven who loved you enough to rescue you. This spiritual wisdom of which I speak flows out of a relationship to God that is built on grace. And grace is by definition undeserved favor. If there's still something inside of you that says, yeah, but you got to earn it. Yeah, but you got to earn it. If you were to reduce your standing before God to one simple statement, what would it be? Standing at the door of heaven, and God says, why should I let you in? And the first words out of your mouth are, I was a good dad, a good citizen, a good employee. Brother, you're giving all the wrong answers. <laughs> your goodness is not going to open the gates of a perfect heaven for you. Forget it. Forget it. You've got to turn from that. That's a dead end. It's the wrong way. You've got to turn from that. What God is calling you to do in, is trust completely in the work of his son Jesus upon the cross. That's where you've got to be. Your mind, your heart, your soul, your spirit. So when the question comes, why should I let you in? Your answer is, Jesus. Jesus, beginning and an end, alpha and omega. He's my answer, and all my hope is in this one person. Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for my sin. If he fails me, I am failed forever. If that's not enough, I'm a goner. Only when you get that right in your heart can you do the good deeds in humility, knowing that the one to whom you minister is as deserving of the grace of God and as loved by the Father in heaven as you are. I mean fully and completely. I saw that photograph, maybe you did too, of that eight-year-old undocumented child at the border. And her sister was being searched, and she was standing there with her teddy bear and a pink monkey. Eight years old, escorted by her older sister. 
captured by the immigration authorities. Who is this person with her teddy bear? She is of infinite worth in the sight of God. She is passionately loved by the Father in heaven. Can you see her this way? Can your brain and your heart adjust to the truth that the down and out, the broken, the sick, the helpless, the hungry are passionately loved by the Father above? Can you make it there? And can you implement that which you believe 24-7 in the life God's given you to live in the world? I talked to a prisoner this week, as I do many weeks. I know the jails. Jesus said, you need to go to prison and visit those folks. You been to prison lately? Some of you go every week. You don't go in there saying, I am morally superior to you. You go in there saying, but for the grace of God, there go I. I remember thinking, who are these people in this prison? I remember that. It struck me when I was a young pastor. I was 28 years old and I went into this maximum security unit in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice and they let me into the weight room where these guys were pumping iron and scared me to death and I was the only person on that block who was a visitor that day and they clanged the door behind me. And I thought, there's a possibility here I'm going to die. Who are these people? And I crept through the space and got through the common room without being killed. And when I stuck my head in the doorway, I hear this voice say, Brother David! And I looked up on his bunk, and here's a young man. I had been his pastor when he was a young teenager. And you know what God spoke to my heart? I do know these people. They're us. They're me. We're all in the same condition. Fallen, broken, needy. By the side of the road, wounded and beat up. And our only hope is a God who loves us. And once it dawns on our heart that he has rescued us and loved us so deeply and passionately, he sets us back up and sends us into the world to be his hands and feet. And there's no other way to do it but in humility if we remember who we are and where we came from. Show your wisdom by deeds done in humility. Face 
the bitter envy and selfish ambition that often creeps into our heart from the outside world, from our own inner desires. That bitter envy has an edge to it. The word bitter is about cutting, and envy is about passion. So there's this cutting, painful passion inside of you, and it's called bitter envy. And it's you wanting the position, the wealth, the power, the influence, the reputation that other people have. You are jealous of them. That sister who did well, that brother who advanced, that fellow employee who got the promotion, and it eats you up every day. It cuts you inside, and you know what? It feels painful inside of you, and you're saying, why can't it be me? And the bitter envy is in your heart because you feel like you have suffered an injustice, and maybe you feel God has done me wrong. I deserve to have that promotion. I deserve to have that wealth. I deserve to be advanced beyond my peers. And now look at what's happened. People in God, they've conspired against me and my present circumstances and my lot in life is a result of injustice that has happened to me. And therefore, yes, I'm angry about it. Yes, I'm bitter about it. Yes, I want what they got. That's inside of me. That bitter envy in you, you need to face it. Now, maybe you're boasting about it. He says, don't boast about it, all right? And some people do. They say, yeah. They boast about it. Some people don't acknowledge it. They don't face the truth that that bitter envy is there, that they are longing for what other people have. They are coveting their houses and their cars. You know what the misunderstanding about bitter envy is and selfish ambition? It's this. This is the cruel, hard truth about it, okay? People think that the facade is what your life is really about. The size house you got, the kind of car you drive, and the clothes you wear and the restaurants you dine in, that's what defines who you really are. The facade, the outside stuff. And that's why bitter envy can creep into you. That's why selfish ambition can creep into you. Because you think it's all about the stuff. You've got this view of life that you want the keys. The key to the Jaguar, the key to the mansion, the key to the safety deposit box, the key to the home on the beach. You want the keys. And you're going to hang on to those keys, and they are going to be emblems of your success in the world. And when you die, you want a tight grip on all those keys you got. Because that's what your life consists of. And that, my friend, is what James calls here earthly, unspiritual, and demonic wisdom. And God wants to deliver you from it today. He wants you to face it and find his deliverance from such a view of life because it is so skewed and so directly against 
the teachings of Jesus who said your life does not consist of the things which you possess. God instead wants to work on your heart. He wants you to develop true wisdom inside. And James tells us what this wisdom that God's going to develop in you is like. And the first word is a word that I want Christy Gibson to speak to. She leads a ministry to the dancers in, on Bourbon Street and in our community. And when I talked about pure, she said something like this. And I said, as a woman, would you speak to purity? As we, as we listen to the, the whole idea, the concept of the wisdom um, from above is, first of all, pure. Um, it, James is telling us that he wants us to seek after this wisdom, to cry out wholeheartedly, asking a God who will give wholeheartedly to us a pure wisdom that is from above. The problem is, and the burden that I have for women and for men in our churches and the women that I talk to every week in prisons, on Bourbon Street, um, in, in, um, in ministry, the ladies that do ministry alongside me, as we talk about purity in their lives, I realize more and more that we have made this thing of purity. And our purity is that facade that you were talking about. We've defined it. When we make a thing out of purity, we can define it and we can draw lines that we will not cross. And we can say, as long as I don't have sex before marriage, I'm pure. And for women, it goes beyond that, as long as I dress modestly and don't, and don't create lust in a man's heart, then I'm pure. And that's a facade of purity. That's we're seeking after that purity that we've created and that is a lie instead of asking God for that pure wisdom that comes only from above. Um, James is retweeting this from Jesus when he, when he talks about this because Jesus told the story of the cup. He said, he said, he said woe to you, for scribes and Pharisees, for you wash the outside of the cup, but the inside is filthy, and you're not taking care of the inside. When we create that facade of purity in our lives, that facade of goodness that, that doesn't take into account grace, we've got a filthy cup on the inside. Now, this one's not as filthy as it sometimes can get because um, I've washed it recently. But if I just keep pouring more and more filth into it, it just gets dirtier and dirtier. And the problem with facades is that we can change them to suit what's in our heart. Um, when I first started drinking coffee, I drank a small cup of coffee. Um, this is what I drink daily. Now, I can tell myself I just drink one cup of coffee a day, but it's a lie. This is much more than just one cup of coffee. If we change that facade to meet, we're not worried about our heart, then, then we just keep getting a bigger and bigger cup to hold our filth, and it's not true purity. And what James is telling us is I want that pure heart. I want you to take that heart and give it to me wholeheartedly. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, mind, and strength. And that's the key to purity. It is. It's interior, isn't it? Yes. It's, it's that on the sincerity inside. he mentions at the end. 
It is a desire to know and love God and to have no foreign substance in that. The motivation is simply love, not self-advancement or anything of that nature. Now, I want you to look at the two words that he uses right here. He says, the wisdom from above is, first of all, pure. Then, peace-loving. And I want you to think about the difference between pure and peace-loving. And if you think about it for a while, you realize that pure is about the interior you. And I hope that you're paying attention to your character, to the interior you. But look at peace-loving. Peace-loving is more about you relating to your wife, to your children, to your neighbor. And so in pure, you have the inner you, and in peace-loving, you have the social you. Tell me something about yourself. Are you a peacemaker? Not everybody loves peace. Some people manipulate others as a standard practice by fear intimidation and physical threat sometimes even violence there's a worldly wisdom that says that's the way to get your way to impose your will on others to win the argument win the day and have the decision go your way there's a worldly wisdom that says that's how you do it that's how you ought to do and it's loving conflict war and violence instead of loving peace the wisdom that comes from above is first of all pure and then peace loving do you love peace are you willing to love peace enough to become a peacemaker Are you willing to try to make peace? You know, Jesus said, blessed are the what? Peacemakers. Why? For they shall be called the children of God. They're going to be God-like. They're going to look like their father in their peacemaking. Blessed are the peacemakers. The closest we get to the use of this word that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount is right here in the book of James. Right here, peacemaking. It's two different words. It's not the compound word, but it's the same words that Jesus used in compound in Matthew chapter 5. In other words, Jesus is calling you to be a peacemaker, and when you love peace and you make peace in your family, in your marriage, with your children, and at work, you're doing what God has called you to do, and people are observing a wisdom and understanding in you that comes from above. You don't yet know how costly peace will be to make in your life. It's actually going to be very costly for you to make peace. You're going to have to lay your life down. See, God made peace with you. If you have peace with God today, it's because he made it. And this is how he made it. He gave his son. That's how God made peace. God made peace with you through the giving of his son. Christ laid down his life. 
He himself is our peace. And there's something in your marriage, in your family, in your friendships, in your business that you're going to have to lay down to make peace. Maybe your pride, maybe your way, maybe something you really feel is right, but you've got to make peace. We have not yet valued peace as highly as God values it. In the family of faith, in our families, in our marriages, we still are not at the point where we value peace like God values peace. You say, peace at any price? No, it's not peace at any price. But it is peace at a great price. Even the giving of your life on behalf of another. I'm so glad that God sends his rain. I feel like I'm in a torrent of God's favor every day that I live. <laughs> I'm living in the rain shower of his grace. His blessings just falling down. And when it rains on me, I say, God, thank you. You're such a good and gracious God. You just keep pouring the blessings down. Every good and perfect thing comes from above. Amen. In your life, every good and perfect thing, it's a gift. Let's bow together. Dear God, Lord, thank you that you send the rain on the just and on the unjust, and you include us in your blessings. We want to be like you, God, in this, to show favor and grace and mercy to, toward those who are around us, to love not only our neighbor, not only our brother, but also our enemy. To extend your love in a dramatic way in our community, in our world. To be your hands and feet, to get our body and gear, not just our brain. To put together the things that we know and the things that we do. And to live with integrity in the world. God, we pray you'll help us do it. God, I pray today that your Holy Spirit will deal with us. There's so much at stake, so much of life at stake in living with godly wisdom. So many marriages and families at stake. The most important things, God, the things that we ought to be truly valuing at stake in learning to live this way. So God, help us do it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.